I'd like you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16. We're going to be in verse 19 today. Because last week we contemplated the verse right before that, verse 18, on the meaning and impact of pride. And what we found out is that pride is exalting ourselves over God and other people. And the ultimate consequence of of our unrepentant pride is a permanently broken relationship with God. And that is what you call spiritual and eternal devastation. But even as Christ followers, with our salvation sealed for eternity as it is, we do still struggle with all the various forms of pride, don't we? Pride is an ever-present ingredient of our sinful nature, a nature that we have inherited, all of us, from Adam. And so what we actually are striving for we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul puts it. What we're actually striving for is humility. That's what we're striving for. Humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is the natural output of a heart that's been changed by Jesus Christ. And so humility is what today's verse is all about. While verse 18 of Proverbs warns us, of of Proverbs 16 warns us about the danger of pride, verse 19 declares the great value of humility. And so as we think of these verses and meditate on them, let's not forget the overall context of Proverbs, which is that pride equals foolishness and humbleness equals wisdom. And in fact, these two verses are in the exact middle of the book of Proverbs. And now I don't know if Solomon intended it that way, but it's an interesting fact because it's kind of a, a great way of summarizing the whole book. Ahead and read these two verses uh, for us, verses 18 and 19 of Proverbs 16, and we're going to focus today on verse 19. Beginning in verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of his word. Well, the lesson that the Holy Spirit wants to grasp and hang on to today is that humility is the pinnacle of life. And so as we begin our meditation of God's truth in verse 19, as we focus on this idea that humility is the pinnacle of life, we're going to follow the same pattern that we did last week. We're going to parse out the meaning of humility. We're going to address both what it is and what it's not. And we're also going to answer an extremely important question, and that is, why is humility better? Why is humility better than pride? And then finally, we're going to dig even deeper and find out how to be humble in real life, how we as God's people can be humble in the world we live in. And so the point here in verse 19 is basically this, that the value of humility, uh, of having a low spirit as Solomon puts it the value of humility is infinitely greater than pride and this of course only makes sense because as we found last week there's really no no value at all in pride there's only destruction and so to the ancient Hebrews the concept humility always implies the object of our humility and that is God himself the 
word for lowly, to be low, to become low, down, uh, to be humiliated, and even to be abased. That is, even hated and belittled. Now, the Hebrews uh, believed on the one hand that wealth meant God's favor, but on the other hand, that being of a lowly condition also often meant that a person could know and receive the grace of God more readily. You become more aware of the grace of God when you need him. Uh, and the, somebody who is prosperous has the opposite struggle. Uh, they become less aware of God because of their prosperity. And so the hu- humble person is more likely to understand they do truly need God. Now, when my dad was, was very young, he an elderly couple who lived uh, nearby in, in his very, very poor community. And they had, these people had very little in this little shack that they lived in. They had a few pieces of simple furniture. They had uh, a table and some chairs. And they had their one prized possession, and that was the Bible. And so not only did they read their Bible every evening before they went to bed, but they also understood God's grace and love. In other words, they believed what the Bible said, and they believed that they needed to submit uh, to God Almighty. And so in their quiet and humble way, uh, they were really a shining light of the gospel in that community. Now, on the other hand, I've known and and met a, a fair number of prominent people and you go into their studies in their home, and their studies alone are bigger than that couple's shack. And the walls are lined with hundreds of, of books, but there's not a Bible among them. And so let me ask you, who is the impoverished? The couple that my dad knew or the prominent people? Who was really impoverished? You see, this is the, 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 the question that Proverbs 16, 19 is raising for us. And so the ancient Hebrews also understood the word poor, the concept of poverty, uh, to mean not only materially impoverished, but also to be oppressed and afflicted. And now, this was something that was old hat to the Hebrews. They were constantly afflicted when when others uh, gained power over them, usually because they strayed away from God. But in this time of of desperate need, uh, this raised their sense of needing God, usually, especially when the going got rough. And again, sometimes uh, they failed in that even. But Solomon is painting a startling picture for us here. It's better to have nothing and to be nothing in this world but to know God than it is to have it all but not to know God. And that means that there's got to be something a whole lot more to humility than just letting the old lady go in front of you in the long line at the store or being kind to animals or, or <laughs> kind to children or, or whatever. Those things are good things. Uh, humility certainly includes those things, but there's a whole lot more to it. So what is, what more is there? Well, the clue to our answer has to do with Solomon's use of the phrase, divide the spoil with the proud. You see, dividing the spoil conjures up here robbery. Solomon is asserting that the perceived advantages of pride 
are actually stolen goods. That's an apt comparison, considering that the proud exalt themselves above God and other people. Only God can hold that position. Only God is above us and above other people. Only God is above all things. And so to be proud is essentially to try to steal a higher rank than you deserve and to rob the dignity of others while you do it. You know, if you've ever had anything stolen from you, you know it exactly what the Holy Spirit through Solomon is, is getting at here. I had my car stolen one time. I think I've told you this before. And when that happened, I, vi- I felt violated, and rightly so. If your home has ever been broken into, well, my goodness, you feel the horror of that transgression even more. And so it's no wonder that God considers pride to be a transgression to Him, an offense to Him as we steal even a little bit of His glory for ourselves. That's, a, that's an offense to God, and therefore it causes a rift between us and God. And so back to our passage in verse 19, it is uh, essentially saying this, it's more than rich and proud, but why? I mean, it seems like being rich would outweigh a whole lot of other things. But you see, Just as pride to the Jews always meant first and foremost a rejection of God, humility meant to the Jews true submission to God. So pride separates us from God and humility draws us nearer to God. And that means that only a truly humble person is able to say something like this. Now last week we quoted something very similar but it went uh you know in in your pride you might say well i brought myself into this world i endowed myself with all my talents and abilities and so on well humility says this god brought me into the world god endowed me with all my talents and abilities god has raised uh, raised me from death to life in faith god uh, has taught me everything that i know God lovingly controls my present and my future. And so I need God for absolutely everything. That's what humility is. It's a complete submission to the sovereign will of our Father, bowing to His standards for living, bowing every day and all day in service to Him, giving uh, Him the credit for all that we are and all that we do. And by the way, it takes a great deal of fortitude to bow in humility before God. The reason is, is that humility is not weakness. This is a common misunderstanding about the nature of submission in our culture. Our culture thinks that humility, generally speaking, is weakness. It's easy to misunderstand Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It sounds like that Christ is saying that the weak and the frail will inherit the earth. Well, it's true in a sense, but not in the way that the world thinks of it. You're not Mr. Milktoast here. It takes a great deal of of determination to be humble before God. The word that Christ uses for meek here comes from a Greek word that conveys a strength of conviction in which we accept that all of God's dealings with us are good. 
And therefore, we don't dispute a single thing that God puts us through or places in our lives. We never dispute or resist His will. Now, I love the way a South African preacher of the 1800s and the early 1900s affirms this. His name was Andrew Murray. And he says this, just listen to this. Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. We're surrounded, brothers and sisters, by trouble. But humility gives us that sense of peace. It's a real peace. It's a real peace that is founded on what Christ has done for us. You see, humility is the pinnacle of life. That seems backwards, doesn't it? In our world, we think being proud and, and, and having everything, all of our dreams come true is the pinnacle of life. But the reason that humility is the pinnacle of life is that while pride draws us away from God, humility draws us ever closer to Him. This is the overwhelming value of humility because being close to God means we are truly alive. Now before we move along, since we've been talking about wealth and poverty here, we need to understand what this verse is and is not saying. Let's start, let's, let's get what it's not saying out of the way first. This verse is not saying that being rich makes you evil. That it, it, because after all, the Bible teaches us that it is sin, the sin that comes from our hearts, that makes us evil. Whether we're rich or poor, we're saved only by the cross and nothing else. This verse is also not saying that being poor makes you a better person. Being proud of your after all, is a sin, isn't it? And so the rich young ruler didn't follow Christ because he was proud, because he loved his money more than he loved Christ. But you know what? There are plenty of rich people in the Bible who were true followers too. Abraham was wealthy. Isaac and Jacob and Job were wealthy people. And in the New Testament, there's Lydia and Aquila and Priscilla, and there's Philemon, not to mention Joseph of Arabia. Uh, who provided our Lord's tomb. And there's, there's a lot of poor people, too, who love the Lord. And, and uh, John just mentioned in the catechism one of them, John the Baptist. He's the one who said, I must decrease so that he might increase, so that Christ might increase. That's his humility. And so these people, if they were wealthy in the Bible, used their wealth for God's glory including giving to the needy. So the spiritual question is never about whether we're wealthy or impoverished, at least materially. Poverty doesn't guarantee a restored relationship with God any more or less than wealth does. The question is always about whether you're impoverished in your spirit, and that's what Jesus is getting at in saying that the meek shall inherit the earth. 
The question is about who do you love with your money or your poverty? Who do you love in the way that you live your life, yourself or Jesus Christ? The question is about who your heart belongs to. And that means then that our verse is clearly not saying that you cannot be humble and rich. The verse is also clearly not saying that you cannot be proud and poor. So what is our verse saying? Well, it's saying this, that wealth and poverty are not the major concern. What matters is who your heart belongs to, no matter how much or how little you have. Having God is the only thing that's of true value in this world. And so now we know a little bit of what humility is, its total submission to God. We also know a little of why humility is better than pride. It's because humility draws us closer to God. And we also know that humility involves who our hearts belong to. And so now it's time for us to dig a little deeper, in fact, dig a lot deeper, and find out how to be humble people in real life. And so as we learn humility, what we're going to learn is that we become people for one, deny ourselves. We deny ourselves when we're humble. And when we're humble, uh, we treat others as more significant than ourselves. And then third, uh, we follow after the exa example of Christ's humility because he is a powerful example of humility. In fact, the most important example in the entire universe. And so first, we deny ourselves. So what does this mean? When we truly bow in submission to God through faith in Christ, the natural outpouring of our humility is to deny ourselves. This is how Jesus puts it in Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is a call to every believer. Jesus isn't speaking only to his disciples. He's calling everyone uh, who wants to follow Christ to deny himself. And to deny yourself is to reject a life that is based on your self-interest and self-fulfillment. Now, on the contrary, and this helps us understand what it means to deny ourselves, uh, on the contrary, the world's religion is a call to satisfy yourself in possible. And so you become the God who must be pleased. And so this is why so many sins are no longer recognized as sins in the world today. Satisfy your desires. That's really the only important thing in life, according to the world. But as a true disciple of Christ, we seek to fulfill the will and teachings of the Lord. That's our number one concern in life. And it trumps all of and so this is what we do when we take up our cross in verse 23. Taking up the cross is, of course, a reference to the Roman custom of requiring the, the condemned uh, prisoner to carry his cross uh, to the place of crucifixion. And this is exactly what our Lord did. And so the fact that Christ uses this imagery is a clue of what kind of reaction our humility is going to have uh, from the world around us as we bow before our maker. And so we shouldn't be surprised at all when the world persecutes us for our faith. We're called to join in the sufferings of Christ after all. We just need to make sure that we bear witness to the Lord in humbleness and gentleness. This is what 
Peter is driving at in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And do it with vim and vigor and smack them on the back of the head with your Bible and get angry at them. Is that what he says? Of course not. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That gentleness and respect is born of our humility. Taking your cross to follow Christ doesn't only mean in faith. It means a visible and practical denial of all of your, your rights, your claims to self-preservation and to taking care of your own interests. This is a readiness, brothers and sisters, even to die for the sake of the gospel. Jesus is calling everybody within earshot of him, including us, to be willing to die for him. Many who heard him speak these words that very day would die for the gospel after his resurrection and ascension. Hebrews 11 describes people who were sawn in two for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what about you? What about you? Are you humble enough before God to realize that the gospel is more important than your life here on earth? Are you humble enough to realize that the gospel is more important than your politics? Are you, are you humble enough to realize that your job and even your family needs to submit to the will of God? Are you humble enough to realize that your sole purpose on this planet, this is it, your sole purpose is to glorify God in whatever you do and then in paradise to enjoy Him forever. That's your purpose, to worship God and to serve Him. And so Jesus is calling us to radical commitment to Him, even very difficult commitment, commitment that's inconvenient, commitment that disrupts our lives. That certainly happened to John the Baptist, didn't it? He was beheaded. And think of all of the apostles who were killed for their faith. They were called to radical commitment to God, and that commitment to God completely disrupted, just turned their lives upside down. But they received that with joy because they got to serve their Lord Jesus Christ. So, bleak of a picture here of it. Commitment is, is not only uh, called for in a crisis kind of situation. Jesus says we take up our cross daily. That means in the normal rhythm of our lives. We renew our commitment to him every day with an evident devotion that undergirds and sustains everything in our lives, just part of our lives, not just here on Sunday, but every other day of the week as well, no matter what we're doing, no matter uh, who we're talking to. And so this radical commitment to Christ means that we're not just students of Christ who sort of take a survey class in the life of Christ. What this commitment means is that we are his devoted servants, 
Our whole existence is determined by and patterned after our crucified and risen Savior King. That's what our lives are all about. And this kind of commitment, brothers and sisters, requires, above all, humility. It takes humility to recognize this. Humility enough to understand God just in our lives. Heaven forbid that we say, I need God in my life. No, we need God to govern our lives. We need God to be the ruler of our lives. We need God, through Jesus Christ, we need Him to be our King. The King to whom we submit so that we live in a way that is holy and pleasing to Him. This is the way of Christ Himself. In the garden, just before he carried his cross up the hill, he sweated blood knowing the agony that he was about to experience when his Father in heaven would turn his back on him. And yet he prayed, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. George Whitfield, one of the great preachers of the 1700s, in his sermon self put it like this, O oh Jesus, thine was an innocent will, and yet thou renounced it. To put that into plain modern English, Jesus, yours was a divine, perfect will, yet you renounced it in favor of your Father's will. That's incredible humility. His will is innocent, but ours is not, brothers and sisters. So even if Christ submitted his will to the Father, if Christ did that, then how much more ought we to do the same? Because ours is not an innocent will like his was. So all the more we must submit to our Father and submit to Christ and live for him. And so, brothers and sisters, we are called to deny ourselves. That's one of the key elements of humility. We're also called to treat others as more significant than ourselves. As we deny ourselves in submission to God, uh, the way that we treat others is very, very important. It is, it's the symptom of whether we're humble before God. Paul puts it like this in the passage John uh, read for us this morning out of Philippians chapter 2, in 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Of course, what Paul is doing is expounding on the gold standard that Jesus gave us for the way that we should treat others. In Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That sums everything up. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Pastor John recently preached about loving others from Luke chapter 6, and this is an excellent passage in which Christ, in his own words, helps us to understand the kind of radical humility that causes us to treat others in a godly way. Beginning in verse 27 of Luke chapter 6, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. 
Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There's that golden rule again. But my goodness, talk about radical. Love your enemies? Pray for them? Are you kidding? Shouldn't, shouldn't we be chopping ears off like Peter did in the garden? Absolutely not. Because we were once God's enemies too. We once hated Colossians 1.21, Paul explains that we were, were people who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We were against God. And then in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, Paul declares, For while we were still weak, <clears throat> for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we hated him, Christ died for us. While we hated him, Christ forgave us of our sin. He forgave us of our rebellion. So, brothers and sisters, learning true God-fearing humility does not come from good advice or a self-help book or, or counseling. We become truly humble only when we realize the radical magnitude of God's grace for us, namely how absolutely undeserving we are of even a molecule of God's love. And yet He has loved us. He has loved us, and Christ willingly died for us. You see, when we realize that, the magnitude of God's grace for us, that's when our hearts are changed, and that's when we learn to be truly humble. And so having been God's enemies ourselves, how in the world, how in the world could we ever look noses at another person because we were also once alienated and hostile in mind just like they are. We didn't save ourselves and the people who oppose God save themselves either and we need to look upon them with the same humility that our Lord Jesus Christ looked upon us. And so as we reflect on that and what we learned last week about pride, that pride always causes us to treat others unjustly in some way, shape, or form. We can begin to understand now why humility causes us to love our enemies and to treat others as more important than ourselves and to treat others in the same way we'd like to be treated. The reason for our humility is the humility of the Son of God who died for us while we rejected Him. And so that leads us to the example of Christ's humility. This brings the undeniable example of our humble Lord. If there is any humility about which we can boast, it is the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is so important for us to comprehend just how low our Messiah bowed in humility to his Father's will. If we catch a hold of this, 
you're going to be all the more willing and able to bow in humility too. John read that beautiful passage in Philippians about the humility and love that we're to show one another. And our example for that, Paul asserts, is Jesus Christ himself, beginning in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so the phrase, the form of God, is extremely important here for us to understand humility. According to a, a very well-known and accomplished uh, scholar in ancient Greek, uh, the word form here is, is, and this gets a little deep, so bear with me, the word form here is referring to the outward expression which a person gives of his inmost nature. The outward expression that a person gives of his inmost nature. So when we're humble, we're expressing our love for God. When we're proud, we're expressing our love for ourselves. It's really that simple. And so when Paul declares that Jesus was in the form of God, he's actually referring to the divine essence, that which makes up God. Now, God is obviously uh, not physical. He has no physical shape. God's essence is who he is in all of his perfect ways, all of his perfect thoughts, all of his absolute holiness and his, his holy character. And so that means that Jesus has that same perfect divine essence. That's who Jesus is. And so, of course, that means that Jesus is God, that he is, as this uh, Greek scholar puts it, the absolute deity himself, a co-participant with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in that divine essence. And so Jesus then, being God, doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, our Lord never stopped being God, but he was willing to waive some of his power and authority in submission to his Father. And why did he do that? So the Father's will could be accomplished. And so in verse 7, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. A better way to translate this, because of the Greek grammar, is that Christ emptied himself having taken the form of a servant. In other words, having already taken the form of a servant. He became a servant first and then emptied himself. In other words, Jesus became something he wasn't before. Somehow, <laughs> he, he, he is exchanged expressing himself as God for expressing himself as a servant and to do that in the likeness of man. And so this is why Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so in becoming a servant, Christ emptied himself, which speaks to his willingness to give up some of his power and authority in submission to the Father. And so as Christ did that, he set his own will aside by denying himself. He set his own perfect, innocent will aside to do the Father's will. And so this means that Christ not only calls us to deny ourselves, but he denies us too. 
And he did it so that his Father's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, just as Christ taught us to pray. And so in humbly denying himself, God the Son, God the Son, became a perfect man who died for us, as undeserving as we are of that grace. And even though Christ is the one through whom all things were made and hold together, he became the kind of servant who bowed at the feet of his disciples to wash their feet. This is, this is one of the most humble things you could do in the Jewish culture. And our Lord, the Lord of all creation, bowed at his disciples' feet and did this menial thing to them. And he even washed the feet of Judas. And he knew even then, that Judas would betray him. So you see, Jesus never commands us to do what he would not do. Christ humbled himself, and so should we. And he even washed the feet of his enemy, Judas. In fact, after he washes the disciples' feet, Jesus asked them in John 13, verses 12 through 15, do you understand what I just grasp this. This is a question that our Lord has for us. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Don't we call him teacher and Lord? If I then, your teacher and Lord, have feet, so also, you also ought to wash another's feet. In other words, you ought to be serving those around you in a deeply, deeply humble sort of way. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Isn't that beautiful? Christ never asked us to do anything that he didn't do. And this, of course, means that Christ is calling us to be humble servants, humble servants of God, humble servants of others. Because Christ humbled himself in all of these ways, obeying his Father, back to Philippians 2 in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus humbled himself, and the Father in return exalted him to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But that isn't where the exalting of the humble because it, it, this exaltation happens to us as well. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That is, whoever uh, uh, denies God, whoever does not believe God, whoever rejects God will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James affirms this in, in James 4. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So this is exactly why humility is the pinnacle of life. True humility is total submission to God. True humility is, is a, a real relationship with our Savior and with our God, the Father in heaven. True humility is a place on earth face down in the dust, honoring 
our king. And that's because the lower we bow before him, the more we deny ourselves, the more we treat others as more significant than ourselves for his sake, the more that we imitate the humility of Christ, the higher we go. Because we know and understand God's grace all the more. And you know what that means? It means we have life and not destruction. We have true life. We have what the Bible calls abundant life. We have eternity to look forward to. You see, humility is the pinnacle of life because as we bow in service to Christ, not only have we been exalted to the foot of the cross to be washed by our Savior's blood for the forgiveness of our sins, but because of his resurrection, God is going to exalt us one day into the very presence of God forever. Ever and ever. Amen. It's no wonder that humility is better than pride. To God be the glory. Amen. Well, let's bow our heads now. For I'm, I'm going to look at my watch and we'll bow our heads for a minute. And let's offer up our prayers of submission. Maybe, maybe you've realized that you have not submitted to God. And you need to. This is your moment to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're a believer and you realize that there's a lot of pride in your life and you need to submit to him. So now is the time to submit to him. And as you submit to him, thank him. Thank him for dying on the cross for you and rising from the dead for you. Most gracious and ever-loving God, the God who sent his own son to live and die for us, to die on the cross, to become sin for us. We bow before you because of what you have done for us. We bow before you because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who willingly went to that cross, who willingly experienced your wrath as you turned your back on him so that we might be forgiven. We bow before you because Christ has accomplished this marvelous, wonderful thing that displays the magnitude, the radical humility of your grace toward us. And so for that, we thank you and we praise you and bow before you today. We praise you for our salvation. We praise you that bowing before you is the highest place on earth. We thank you, Lord, that one day you will exalt us on high to live with you forever and worship you forever and ever. Amen and amen.